And thank you, Steve Miller. I'm sorry you're down this morning, but we'll be in prayer for you, my friend. We're grateful for all you and Rhonda do and help us on Sunday mornings. While the world has been taken by storm, by a new New York Times best-selling book, Heaven is for Real, a little boy's astounding journey, astounding story, I should say, of his journey to heaven and back. Have you seen it? How many have read it? How many are reading it? And soon, in April, I believe, it will be released in motion picture form. So you'll be able to see this story depicted on the big screen in the movie theaters. It's really wonderful. It's curious how in such an increasingly secular culture, so much spirituality and religious, even biblical themes are being explored. Um, I saw just recently that there's a new um, story of Jonah or I'm not, I should say Noah coming out. That's going to be marvelous. True to the biblical account, and also another story about Jesus. It's all over our culture. Yet there's a surprising disconnect between the fascination with biblical religion and these themes and life beyond and any real living that is directly impacted by it. Jesus called it square when he repeated the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, it's wonderful to be entertained and to enjoy a bit more of a wholesome offering, especially from Hollywood, isn't it not? And from publishers, of course. But listen, if these profound realities as they are delivered to us never have an impact on our life, let alone on our culture... I wonder what's the point. So I thought it would be helpful in light of all of that to take a few um, moments together over today and the next couple of weeks and look at what all the world's a stir about. Heaven is for real. We do believe it. And there really are some foundational truths as Christians that we should know and believe. And that's what I'd like to highlight for all of us. And certainly high on the list of top ten would be the, the truth that heaven is real. Amen? We sung of it this morning. Steve just sang beautifully of it. It ought to lift us to praise. But before you rush out and buy the book, and you should, or make your plans to reserve your tickets for opening night at this movie, it's certainly a a lot better option than most of the things that are coming out of Hollywood. I wonder if you'd mind taking a look at what the Bible says about heaven. Could we do that? And see if based on what is revealed in Scripture, you will come away saying with great confidence and even praise as Steve lifted us to consider, heaven is for real. So I'd like to begin by looking at two passages this morning, one from the Old Testament and the other from the New Testament. Both passages reveal startling things about heaven that you may or may not know. Certainly things that are not going to come at you from a wider culture. Both are told from the perspective of two individuals who saw it, that is heaven, and experienced it with their own eyes. Thousands of years apart, 
but with remarkable consistency. So the first story is found in the beginning of the scriptures, which is Genesis. Genesis chapter 28. And it's the story of Jacob. So if you'll go to Genesis 28, we'll begin looking at this great story. First of all, I'd like us to consider heaven as our tutor. And we'll see that in this story. Of course, foundational to the life of faith from the beginning of the scriptures, certainly in in the Genesis account, all the way to the end of the New Testament, is the the foundation of faith that was laid by the Abrahamic covenant. God spoke to Abram. He said, I'm going to make your name great. I am going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And of course, the, the end of that great story is that God blesses Abram and Sarah with a child. His name is Isaac. He is the child of promise. And it is through this lineage of Isaac, this lineage of faith, that ultimately Messiah would come. And through the ministry of Messiah, Jesus Christ, salvation would be accomplished for the whole world. And nations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is the Cliff Notes version of of the wider story of the the God who speaks to Abram in, in covenant. And so this story is is kind of at the beginning of that narrative. Isaac, of course, also had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And and, and we wish we had time to unpack that great narrative. But chapter 28 is is, is where Isaac, in, in his later years, pronounces blessing on his son Jacob. He is the favored child. So Isaac called for Jacob at the beginning of uh, Genesis 28 and blessed him. And he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once uh, to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of people. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you reside now as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. He invokes this great thought of the covenant. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way. Listen, this is a wonderful passage for a father onto his son. First of all, to pronounce a blessing on his life. I like that. It's not real clear how old Jacob is at this point, but it is very clear that part of Isaac's responsibility, covenanted responsibility, was first of all to bless his son. We need to bless our sons as men of faith. We need to take a a point in their life, perhaps when they enter into manhood or when they enter into marriage or start their families, and we need to deliberately, lovingly, and with great authority that is given to us from the word of God, bless them. Pronounce a blessing upon their life. You don't necessarily have to use these words, but, but bestow upon them your favor and a prayer of blessing for their life, that God would use them, God would protect them, God will bless their life and give them prosperity with the gospel. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful passage. And then there's something else that Isaac did. Not only did he bless him, he moved him on. (laughs) 
Did you notice? Jacob, it's time to go. (laughs) Hey, sometimes we need to do that too, right? No, we don't tell that to a 10-year-old. It might be time to go to school, but to a 22-year-old or a 28-year-old or a 36-year-old, <laughs> dads might just have to come to a point where they bless them and say, listen, it's time. It's time to move on. What a great gift Isaac gave to Jacob. He affirmed him and said, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to leave the umbrella of my care and provision and go on your own. You, you have the resources of heaven and the blessing of God on you. Go. Go. I like that. We'll talk a little more about that a little later on, perhaps in our times together. But this is, this is a great, great, wonderful picture of the relationship between a father and and a son. Now look down at verse 6. Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, was a Canaanite woman, the sister of Nebaioth and the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Completely different picture, the response of Esau. But that's for another sermon. But you see, both of these men struck out. They left their father. And here's the story I want you to look at this morning. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He's in motion. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. So he's traveling. And he takes a break. The sun is going down. It's getting dark. And he reaches this certain place. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he laid down to sleep. So he's, he's camping out. On his journey, out under the night sky, he's gone to sleep on a rock. You see that? Now verse 12 says, he, Jacob, had a dream. This is marvelous. He, He went to sleep, and in the middle of his sleep, he had a dream. This is as natural as the human experience. He saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Isn't that marvelous? The first thing that Jacob sees in his dream is that there is an expanse between earth and heaven. Earth is down, heaven is up. You need to know that. Now, I don't know if you've ever stepped off a plane into some beautiful tropical paradise and you walk out of the gate and you step outside. And you feel the warmth of the sun having left the cool, damp Midwest. And you say something like, oh, this is heaven. Well, we know what you mean by that. But heaven is not on earth. You need to know that. This is earth. Jacob saw in his dream that there's a difference between the earthly experience and something that is far beyond that. It's heaven. There's an expanse. 
Now you're probably saying, duh, Pastor, we know that. Well, you might. But there's a whole watching, wondering world out there that are going to read books and watch movies and become unbelievably fascinated with the world beyond that are still convinced that they can experience paradise, utopia, and heaven here in the earthly experience. And according to the biblical witness, no, there is a great difference between earth and heaven. There is an expanse. Jacob saw that, and he saw that heaven was up. Earth is down. Heaven's not a state of mind. It's a place. And in this this experience, this dream, Jacob is offered a new kind of God-revealed perspective. He sees the expanse between his life, his situation on earth, and heaven. And by the way, I love it that there, there, there needed to be a stairway. A stairway. It's a powerful metaphor. Not leads from earth up to heaven. Listen, heaven is reachable. It is accessible from earth. In, in this dream, Jacob sees a stairway. A stairway is a metaphor for a, a way in which someone who is earthbound can make their way up to some completely different reality. And the other thing a stairway is, and we've, we've seen this especially with our toddlers, a stairway is an invitation. What toddler, when he sees a stairway, is not going to automatically begin to attempt to ascend the stairway, right? A stairway is an invitation. This is a powerful vision and dream that speak glorious truths into the human experience. The stairway seems to be for created things, perhaps bound for heaven. It is reachable from earth, but this is a dream. He sees it's high. Uh, he sees that it's high above the earth. Now let's let's just kind of continue with the dream. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And guess what? The angels of God were uh, ascending and descending on it. Guess who's on the stairway? Angelic beings. He sees angels. Now that's marvelous, isn't it? Um, Heaven is is a dwelling place of angelic beings. There are angels there. Um, and, and they are making their way uh, up and down on this stairway. How many times uh, in, in the biblical story, starting with Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, do we see the ministry of angels from heaven down to those on earth? They are ministering servants, the New Testament tells us, of, of Almighty God. They minister on His behalf, His beck and call, not only to Him, but to, to those on earth. And we see this in Jacob's dream. There's a reality that angels, they, they are not bound to the heavenly realm. They, in fact, have quite free and able access back and forth between heaven and earth. And and that's powerful. We see that Jacob saw that in his dream. Listen, he's not alone in this earthly experience, and neither are you. You are not alone today. 
You were not alone when you packed up your family and drove to this place of worship. Do you know that God has attending angels on your behalf? They make their way from heaven to earth routinely, quietly, silently, invisibly, but nonetheless very real. We see this in Jacob's dream. Any expression out there in the movies or in any sort of written form or book needs, needs to give witness to the fact, first of all, that there is a great chasm between earth and heaven. Heaven is a place. It is reachable from earth. And there are these magnificent, mysterious, powerful, invisible beings called angels. And, and they are very much in motion on our behalf. I want to see that in this movie. It's there in, in his dream. Uh, now, the other thing in verse 13, look at this. There above it, above, above it, high there at the top of this staircase stood the Lord. So the world needs to know that heaven is the dwelling place of Almighty God. The Lord is there. And he is at the highest place. He's there. The Lord is there. It is not a pantheon of gods. It is the dwelling place of Almighty Ruler, Creator God. He is there. Jacob sees him the top of this staircase it says above it stood the lord and he speaks the lord speaks i am the lord the god of your father abraham the god of isaac i will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying he speaks to jacob from heaven your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east to the north and to the south all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offering. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. He just absolutely, almost verbatim, repeats the blessing and the promise his father Isaac gave to him perhaps just days ago. And the one thing that I want you to know, and I want you to believe, that if there's any expression of the reality of heaven from anyone's experience, it will always square perfectly with what has already been revealed in the Word of God. This experience, this dream, as, as Jacob saw it unfold in his sleep and what he heard from heaven, what he heard from the Lord and reports back and, and becomes part of the written, the, the, the written revealed kind of record of Scripture, completely squares with what God had already said. That's a good guide for you. It's a good guide for me. As we make our way through the swirl of culture, and all of these things. I love this, that Jacob sees the Lord, and the Lord affirms the blessing. And he says, I'm going to be with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. 
David exclaims in Psalm 11, at a time when the earth was shaking, what he was feeling beneath his feet was what was loose ground. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. He looks down from heaven on the earth. He sees the righteous and he sees the unrighteous. You see, he understood that though the earth shook beneath him, he had a confidence in a place of heaven. It was real, and the Lord was there, and it was the throne room of Almighty God. This is affirmed in Jacob's dream. And then he wakes up. (laughs) He wakes up. And he thinks. He has a thought about his dream. You ever done that? Maybe you don't remember your dream. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, whoa, glad that's over. He wakes up from his dream, and he reflects on it with his mind, with his thoughts. And this, was, this is what he says. Look at this. Surely the Lord is in this place. By the way, he did not say that after Isaac blessed him. There's no record of Jacob's response after Isaac blesses him. This is a profoundly moving experience for Jacob. He says, whoa. I have, I have experienced something beyond myself here. The Lord is in this place. And I, I was not aware of it. And he was afraid. This experience, as wondrous and mystifying and glorious as it was, brought a certain dread and reverence and fear to the heart of Jacob. He said very little as he reflected on this, and he said, this is about God. This is not about me. This is his place. The scripture says he he was in fear in his response, and it moved him to worship. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He begins to see himself and his life rightly related to the wonder and awesomeness of God. You see, that's what heaven does. That's what a real and genuine experience of heaven, whether it be a dream or whatever, that's what it brings about in the human experience. This is what I want to hear. This is what I want to experience from those who claim in in whatever venue that they have gone to heaven and come back to tell me about it. I want to hear this. I want to see this kind of response because this is the witness of Scripture. It so moved me I can barely speak. In fact, I am moved now from an experience of presumptuousness and kind of leading my own life. This is my planet. This is my journey. I'm going to take life by its tail and I'm going to lead my life to all of a sudden he's saying, whoa, this is, this is about God. I didn't know this. He's converted. I'm not the owner. I'm a steward. Jacob started tithing after this experience. That's what the scripture says. It changed his whole life, all of his priorities. Everything changed. It's wondrous. That's what heaven does. It's our tutor. It teaches us. It breaks us. It moves us. It challenges us to go to a different level in our experience of God because we've been lifted somehow 
from the reality, the earthbound kind of reality of our experience to a higher plane. That's Jacob's experience. And he says, this, this is the place of God. This is his gate. What a gift. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed. He took his pillow and he made an altar out of it. How, how about that? It so transformed him. He said, this is a worshiping man now. He poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel. He called the city. It used to be called, uh, he, though the city used to be called Lutz. Make, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Um, household. Then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. He's converted. This is worship. This is a man who's been converted from an earthbound experience that it's all about him to a focus of his life on God. He's given it all. That's the experience of heaven. That's what happens when someone sees heaven. I love the story of Dr. Criswell. He's the senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas. Great old Baptist preacher, and he was talking about heaven. I think I've told you this story before. And he was talking about the Russians went up to space. And they came back and they said, We were up in space and we didn't see God. And Dr. Criswell said, If those Russian cosmonauts would have taken off their space helmets, they'd have seen God. The reason they'd have seen him is because he's there. Jacob saw him at the top of the stairway in heaven. It's his place. It's his throne. It wasn't about him. And that's what I want to hear. That's what I want to read. Because that's the truth. Heaven's our tutor. Heaven's also our reward. Go with me now to Acts. This is the New Testament passage. By the way, go back on your own this week and read that whole narrative back in Genesis 28 because we, we had to make our way through it pretty quickly and I don't want you to miss the even deeper wonders of it. We certainly did not do it justice in these last 15 minutes. Go back. But now to Acts. It's the New Testament experience. Acts chapter 7. Well, let's just maybe, maybe, maybe dip into chapter 6. We need a little background here. This is the story of Stephen. In this setting, in Acts chapter 6 through, through the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we see that the church of Jesus Christ through the ministry of these apostles is now it's exploding with growth. It's miracles and enormous outpouring of God's Spirit on Jerusalem and, and these apostles. And, and God is doing profound things in the lives of these new believers. And so the church is growing. It's growing so fast that they can't keep up with all the needs of the new believers. That's the challenge that is presented in chapter 6. 
Um, at the beginning, Luke tells us that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, because of their, uh, their widows, were being overlooked in the daily dis- distribution of food. So they weren't getting their fair share of the ministry. So the twelve de- gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So they were making a, a ministry call here. They were getting too busy, too caught up, taking care of physical needs, and they were neglecting um, their responsibility to care for the spiritual needs of God's people, these new believers. And so they they made a decision. Uh, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they they needed to go about recruiting some individuals who were worthy of this task. And the qualification was that they would be filled with the spirit and that they have a record of, of living and abiding in the wisdom of God. Now that's a pretty high bar. But nonetheless, that was what was laid before them. And so everyone was pleased with that. And Stephen was one of those seven that they chose. They chose Stephen, and the scripture says in verse 5 of Acts 6 that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. This is different from Jacob. In sharp contrast to Jacob, Jacob was not a man full of faith at the the juncture at which we first saw him. He was full of himself, (laughs) but he was not full of faith. Jacob was doing selfies all the time. You see, Stephen was not. Stephen had a profound sense of the reality of God. And he was chosen. And he was filled with the Spirit. He was full of faith. He believed everything God said. And there was also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmanus and Nicholas from Antioch. And they they presented these men, the apostles prayed for them, they laid their hands on them, and so all of a sudden now these men are commissioned, and the word of God spread, and the disciples, a number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. If you can imagine that, these Jewish priests actually were converted as a result of this kind of focused ministry of the word of God. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. He wasn't just clearing tables and serving food. This guy was a miracle worker. What a difference between Stephen and and Jacob. Verse 9, opposition arose, however, of course it did. It always does in the light of such freedom in Christ. We talked about that all through Galatians. Anytime someone's free and fully experiencing the power of the Spirit in their life, there's always going to be people in the background that are going, just count on it. In fact, if it's not happening, you're probably not doing what God wants you to do. Because if you are, these people come out of the woodwork. Professor at Dallas Seminary said, light always attracts bugs. So here's Stephen filled with light, and here come the bugs. They're everywhere. I hate it, but they're everywhere. Members of the, san- the synagogue of the, of the freedom. How about that? They're, they're members of the synagogue of freedom. 
Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilician Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. They didn't like the guy because he was doing such unbelievable things. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So now these people come along and they can't hang with this guy, so they have to create lies against him. Also, commonplace. They're just going to stir something. So because they don't have anything and they certainly cannot meet the standard of this man's life, what do they do? They start gossiping about him, creating rumors, all this other stuff. We'll get him some way, even if we have to create a lie about him. So that's what's happening here. They stirred up the people, people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they laid hands on Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. That's great, isn't it? They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, often that little phrase gets overlooked, but I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it because here's what I believe. I can't prove it, so don't send me an email or anything, but this is what I believe. Stephen had already experienced heaven. I don't think he died and went there and came back. I just think he was so profoundly and deeply in relationship with the living Jesus that he was filled with his glory. It was all over his face. That's what I believe. Can't explain it, can't prove it, but I believe it. Something about him shown. And, and, and I, the reason I believe that we're gonna see in just a couple of uh, seconds or minutes or hours or however long you wanna stay here this morning He'd already experienced something of heaven. He had to have. His face shone like an angel. So what he does is he stands up in response to this, and he preaches the sermon of his life. And again, I wish we had time to, to make our way through the whole of chapter 7, because this is his message. This is his sermon. And it's a scathing indictment of the judgmental spirit of Israel. These, these religious leaders... All of seven, the whole of chapter seven is, is Stephen's response. He's not defending himself. He's preaching the word of God in the fullness of the spirit in response to this charge. But I want you to just kind of see a, a couple of phrases from it down in 48, verse 48 of Acts chapter seven. He, he starts to develop. I think he's getting caught up with this. His face is probably still shining like, like that of an angel. I don't know, but this is what he says. However, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. Do you know that? God does not live in this church. He's not in these pews. He's not in these, these great trusses and these great walls. This, this is not the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God, the throne room of God, is not on earth. It's in heaven. 
Stephen proclaims this with all his power and might and character. He says, uh, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne. There you have it. I want to hear that. I want to see that on the screen. I want to read that from someone's account. They're going to come back from, from whatever experience they had, and they're going to say, what I saw, what I saw was a throne. And I saw God, because that's his throne. That's his place. Stephen says it. Heaven is the throne of God, the throne of the most high God. This is where God is. Earth is my footstool. He puts his feet up on earth. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things, you stiff-necked people? Boy, that's just great preaching, huh? That's not going to fill a sanctuary, I'll tell you. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Wow, I mean, he just doesn't hold back. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, now watch this. He's not dreaming. He looks up to heaven. There it is again. Earth is down. Heaven is up. He looks up to heaven and he, see, and he saw the glory of God. He stares into heaven. He's looking up. He's not dreaming. He sees the glory of God. A tremendous display of light and brightness, the wondrous prism of glory. You know what Revelation says? Revelation chapter 21 uh, says that th there's no need for a moon or a sun or stars in heaven. Do you know why there's no need for any of those great magnificent lights? Because God is there and the glory of God lights the heaven. That's what Stephen saw. He saw the, the glory of the Lord. He's not dreaming. His, his head's not on a rock here. He looks up and he sees into the portals of heaven and he sees the glory of God. He also sees Jesus. Now that works. Remember in Ephesus and Colossians we see that Paul, he lifts us to those highest places and he says the, the place of heaven is the seat of Christ. That's where Christ is. He's there too. Not only almighty, the most high God, but his son, his risen son Jesus is also there. And when, when Stephen looks up into heaven, he sees the glory of God and then standing there is Jesus And by the way, he's not seated, he's standing. And I think apparently in anticipation of Stephen's arrival into heaven, and I genuinely believe in honor of his life, he's standing in honor of Stephen. There's something else that I see here. Heaven is open. I see heaven open, Stephen says. And this, by the way, sealed his fate. Because you see, to the self-righteous, heaven is not open. To the religious, heaven is not open. It's closed. It's closed to only those who meet their standard.
Heaven's not closed. Heaven's open. Stephen says so. He saw it with his own eyes. He's not dreaming. Heaven is open. It's open to all who, like Stephen, believe in Jesus Christ and live in honor of his name. Who walk in holiness and humility. Whose robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You see, this is what we want to hear and have reported from someone claiming to have gone there and now come back to tell us of it. Heaven is open. There's the glory of God. I see light. I see the glory of God. And Jesus is there. I see Jesus standing in all his majestic wonder. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he saw angels. Angels weren't singing. They weren't singing, you know, Gaither. I read one account of some guy that went to heaven and he came back and they were singing, the angels were singing, I'm so glad to be part of the family of God. I couldn't believe it when I read it. I just closed the book. That cannot be true. The angels don't know Gaither. They don't sing gospel music. I'm not even sure angels sing. But they don't sing in English if they do. How presumptuous was that? I heard him singing. I'm so glad to be part of the family of God. Listen, you need to be suspect of anything like that. You know what angels do? They shout back and forth. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. I want to hear that from someone who's gone there and come back. I want to read that. I want to see that on the screen. That's legit. He saw the heavens open. I saw Jesus standing there. I saw his glory. Isn't that wonderful? Here's what you can have confidence in. And listen, I've read the book. You need to buy it. Buy it at the open door, okay? Because everyone's reading it. You have an opportunity to witness to those who are so profoundly interested in this thing. And right now, what you need to have confidence in is the title. Heaven is for real. It's for real. Because God says it is. Does that make sense? Heaven is our tutor. It teaches me humility and worship. It converts me from an earthbound, self-serving experience to a life of worship and a profound sense of stewardship and my need to acknowledge an eternal reality so wildly beyond my earthly experience. And it challenges me to live a worthy life like Isaiah. He cleansed my lips. Second, heaven is our reward. Stephen saw his reward. He was about to enter himself into that heavenly experience. And there he looked up. He saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in anticipation of his arrival. Heaven is your reward. It it gives you courage. It gives you boldness. It comforts you in trial. It gives you a hope that is beyond the grave. That is why we are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and he despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of Almighty God. Praise his glorious name. Heaven is for real. You can count on it. But listen. You don't have to die and go back and come back to believe it and to know it. All you have to do is open the word of God. The only person 
in Scripture that died bodily, who separated from the earthly experience, went to heaven and back, came back to fullness of life, and gave witness of it in the power of the spirits was Jesus Christ. The scripture says he went down into the deepest places of the earth and he went up into the heavenlies. He passed through the whole experience and God raised him from the dead. He broke the power of the grave. I want to give you a challenge this week. First, open the word of God. Please, open your Bibles this week. Ask God to speak to you and to open your mind and your heart to the truths of his word. Let God be your guide. Let him be the authority in your life. Let him speak to you afresh and anew through these powerful passages. Let him convert you from an earthbound experience to something that is so holy and fully beyond, beyond yourself to live a life that is honoring and worthy of him. Open your Bibles. Please, open your Bible. Read this book. Bring everything under the scrutiny and the lens of the light of God's word. Everything, 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 everything. Second, ask him. Ask him to use you. Open your life to be used. There is someone in your life, I'm I'm certain of it, or in your world that needs your confidence in heaven this week. They need it. You don't need to kind of fully explain it or have to be able to give all of the the, the, the theological kind of nuances that are delivered perhaps in some of these passages, but you have a hope that is in you that is Christ, and someone needs that. They need to be lifted out of their experience like Jacob. They need to be encouraged in their trial and in their steadfastness, standing for the faith like Stephen. Open your Bibles, but also ask the Lord to open your life to be used of him. Ask God to show you who that person is and to give you courage and grace to speak, to invite, to call, to express, to carry their burden. Oh, God will bless you. That will be a little bit of heaven on earth for that person who so desperately needs a change in their perspective. Finally, listen. Make sure you're ready for heaven. Make sure you're ready. And don't read some book or watch some movie. Come to the truth of God's word and make sure you're ready for heaven. Don't assume, don't rely on, on, on something that you've been told or maybe something out there that's popular. Listen, you need to come to a wrestling reality with the truth of God's word that if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ in his finished powerful work on the cross where he shed his blood and died for you for your sins and rose in his immense power and glory to give you life. If you've never put your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ, you are not ready for heaven.
in a moment, your life could end. There will be no opportunity to claim your Savior. The scripture says, call on him while he may be found. Today is the day of salvation. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not on your deathbed, today. Heaven is for real. Amen? You praise him and that good news? God, make that so real in all of our lives. May it change us. May it make us more holy and humble and bold in our witness of him, see, for the praise and glory of his name. Do you want someone to hear about heaven? You need to bring him here. Let him hear the gospel. Better yet, you tell him. Say, are you reading that book? Let's read it together. You know what the Bible says about heaven? Well, that's good. That's good what he said. But here's what God says too. This is what God said. See, that's great. God can use that. I know what you're asking. So, Pastor, what do you think about the book? I'm not going to tell you. I already told you to get it and read it. <laughs> Let the word of God be your guide. Heaven is for real. Praise him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We want to put our trust in you and in you alone. Thank you for the witness of your people, for the provision of your spirit. Father, for the power of the gospel, pray that you'll use your church to make his, your name known to all the earth for the praise and glory of his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. A, a, a verse and chorus of "Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Just.